City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. The fourth National Elder Abuse Conference will be held in Melbourne on the 24th and 25th of February 2016. With our ageing population and greater focus on family violence, this conference is a timely and crucial part of the effort to stop elder abuse. Focusing on ageism, rights and innovation, the conference will benefit those working with older people. Early bird registrations close on the 11th of November. For more information, check out elderabuseconference.org.au or contact Seniors Rights Victoria on 1300 368 821. That's 1300 368 821. Seniors Rights Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Ah, City Limits, I've just been thinking of that last announcement. I thought, I'm thinking that elder abuse is dragging me here at 9 o'clock in the morning. And in fact, Nola Brooks, who read that uh, promotion, uh, also is here at 9 o'clock this morning to staff the phone, so I think we can probably both claim it. Uh, and you're not hearing the, uh, the dulcet tones, the friendly tones of Corey Green opening the show this morning. You're hearing the not-so-dulcet tones of Kevin Healy opening it. Uh, poor old Corey's laid up. So Ronnie Karenny's got the short stories on the, over there. Ronnie, how are you? I'm good. Good morning to you. Yeah, good morning to you. It's uh, a beautiful we, we said good morning earlier outside. Why do you do it again for? Well, because the sun is shining. Oh, very good. It is, that's right. Riding across this morning, it was pretty good through Edinburgh Gardens, etc. And I caught every light between Brunswick and here. Isn't that amazing? Um, it is uh, third Wednesday of the month. It's the um, it's the housing day, therefore, and. Um, a couple of issues we're going to look at uh, in housing today. We're going to be actually going, we're going to do something we don't often do. We're going to have a look at an issue involving a private golf club over at um, Dingley where uh, they're amalgamating with a peninsula club down at Frankston. And there's been a court case going on where some of the members of the club believe it was not done in a proper manner and they're opposed to the club closing down but in the long term from our point of view there's another group called Save Dingley forming because obviously if it if and when it is sold it'll become prime real estate and you can imagine what the sort of things developers will do on a golf course over there so uh, the, the community's gearing up, getting ready for what might happen in the future there. And April Bragg, of course, coming in from the Housing with the Aged Action Group to talk about broader housing issues, including the announcement in the last few days that uh, very few people, if any, have uh, opted to take up an offer to go back to where their houses that were bought up, the properties bought up for the East-West Link. Uh, the government earlier on did promise that a lot of this would be used for public housing, but now it seems if, at the most there's going to be one bit of social housing. So we have yet again a situation where we've got a government with lots of property, a waiting list that lasts years and years, and uh, with an opportunity to give that to public housing, they've, uh, they're like they're going to renege again, Ronnie, which is great news, isn't it? So there you are. Uh, so we'll talk about those issues and more. Um, and of course... Um, 
I wasn't. Uh, we mentioned last week in passing, in fact, of course, this news about the uh, this news about the government government knocking off environmental laws. Look, I'm going to pour a cup of tea first, Ronnie. Do you want to say something when I'm doing this? Or I'll just keep. No, I'll keep talking. Do you want a cup of tea? I'm assuming you do, Ronnie. I bought two cups in here. Yeah, you're very good, aren't you? That's there generous of you. Thank you. That's very. Oh, it is generous of me, isn't it? Um, that's the sort of person I am, Ronnie. That's the sort of person I am. Um, and uh, <laughs> oh dear, there we go. I'll just pour that. There we are. Now I'll put a bit more in yours. I went. Well, it's not near the microphone, but there you are. And um, and I'll give you a cup of tea. This is very exciting listening for people. Really exciting, riveting. And um, but of course, we said last week when we talked about we talked about the government's climate change um, non-policy that also the uh, the decision of of the court that the works in Queensland had to go on, the Adani mine works, uh, and the government then was saying how terrible it was these environmental people are using the law. And, of course, it's been talked about a lot, but we're now seeing they're actually prepared to change the law for their own ends. Uh, and it does it does question, of course, that whole concept of of separation of powers because you can't have separation of powers if if a court can make a ruling like that and the government can just wander off and change the law although as it turned out anyway the minister said he was going to go away and approve it anyway go through the process again and approve it in the shortest possible but um well, there's been a few cases over the years. Um, one I was involved in as a defendant, where we won on the grounds that the government had not had not observed its own environmental laws. This was to do with a freeway, and um, and we won that. Uh, a friend who was who was lecturing environmental law at that time at Melbourne alerted me to this defence, and uh, we got a my one and only acquittal actually that one, and. Um, we also, at the same time, the Albert Park group and a group in East Gippsland in the forests are all won cases based on the ground that the government had actually not observed its own laws. But in each case, and it was the Kennett government at that time, they went back into court, into, into Parliament the next day and simply changed the laws. So they retrospectively made their own illegalities legal, um, so much for separation of powers. And in fact, this week I heard um, some some conservatives say that um, the government could not get rid of um, Dyson Hayden or Hayden Dyson, I think it's Dyson Hayden, that order, isn't it? Um, The judge, because that would would be against the separation of powers, that he has this separation, ignoring the fact, of course, that he was appointed by them to do exactly what he's doing. Um, So even though they appointed him, once they've appointed him, apparently the separation of powers comes in. But I suspect the separation of powers is only used when it suits them. Um, yeah, uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. we can see that it seems that the the state using, um, you know, in most cases, often we see people legitimately affected by those powers where, you know, the laws are enforced, where you can't, do anything about it, but no. you have to subject to the to the law. The law. That's right. Well, they make they make it, Ronnie. They make it. It's sensible. It's capitalist law, for God's sake. That's, so there you are. Uh, and also, of course, the government's now saying only those with a direct, only those directly affected can take environmental law action. Um, that's what they're going to amend it to. So therefore, one assumes that Dani, the company based in India, actually lives next door to the mine. Does it, um, Ronnie? Well, <laughs> but you know, for the people, if you know, in terms of the 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 law, like if they're gonna appeal at the highest court, where would you see they? You know, it's in the best interest of the people. 
Oh, what's that going to do with it? <laughs> if they have to take this, you know, legal yeah. fight. Yeah. Well, that's the law. That's, that's the argument they always use, of course. It's in the best interest of the people because there's jobs and profits and investment here. But that's that, just words. Yeah. That, of course, takes absolute precedence in all cases over the environmental impact of the thing. And I heard yesterday, I think it was on a Bricky show here or on a show here yesterday at some point, um, so apart from the skink and the snake, which are the cause of the latest judicial uproar, um, the, the, there's, there's a, a very rare bird whose only site apparently is right where the mine will actually be. But one assumes past environmental considerations have taken that into consideration and decided the mine's a lot, worth a lot more than the poor old bird. Uh, <clears throat> but you know, we, I think we're telling, talking to people who know about this. And, and on such things, while it's being challenged here in the court... Um, also, the the better than ours, not great, but better than ours, climate change proposals put forward by Barack Obama. He they're being challenged very much by um, lawyers over there, and uh, so it's the reverse over there. His climate change plan will be challenged in the courts in the coming months when lawyers for at least fifteen states join the coal and power industries to block the carbon reducing rules before they take effect. So over there, their coal mine states are taking the federal government to court to stop them, bringing in laws to stop it. And what I found really interesting, in the Herald Sun on whatever day it was, and I don't think I put the date on it, but it was either Monday or Tuesday this week, um, <clears throat> Heat on Summit is the headline. There's a kick ahead under it, which I'll read in a minute. But scores of Australian delegates will be among the expected 40,000 people creating their own massive carbon footprint, um, notice the bias there, by attending the $280 million Paris Climate Summit, but they are adamant it will be worth the cost, and they talk about the NGOs from Australia, etc. But then they, the, the kicker headline is, Heat on Summit, Paris Green Forum Farce. Now, why would you call a summit to attempt to save the world from climate change change disaster a farce i mean the herald sun there's nothing in the story to suggest that's anything but a serious discussion which it's going to be and i suspect it won't get as far as people hope but that's that's you know that's me being perhaps pessimistic um but that's based on past experience as well uh but why a farce ronnie why a farce i've got no idea have you wasn't it um the australian Uh, government came out as well to make it some stand in terms of since after two weeks ago when Obama came out and you yes, know, yes. addressed this. We, we interviewed a young bloke from the, um, from the Climate Change Youth, Australian Youth Climate Coalition last week about that. And uh, we all know anyway what Australia is going to do is pretty dreadful. Um, and, and the other one this week I just wanted to mention in passing um, is the, the proposed public transport strike. Unfortunately, the trains now apparently are going to run. Well, let's, let's hope. We'll see what happens. Let's hope, though, that uh, the negotiations either reach a satisfactory conclusion for the workers or they uh, they pursue the, the action at some other time. Trams may still go out on Friday. But the, the coverage of it, uh, the coverage of it, uh, particularly in the Murdoch media, is just the usual coverage of these things. It's the workers' fault. There's no two sides to this. There's only mm. workers. Uh, train strife strikes, and then their double-page spread of how it's going to impact on people. And the stories are all about the impact on customers, on users, on passengers, and the suffering involved. No, ne- no mention, or if there's any mention, it's in the last paragraph, of the fact that the dispute is about... Uh, <coughs> what the dispute is about and the fact that it's the... The employer who's been quite recalcitrant about it, um, and and 
so we get the usual thing from the from the media that they never go into the detail of it. The union is always to blame if there's going to be a strike, and to compound that, of course, we've had the transport minister here and the and the premier here both saying it's irresponsible and terrible for unions to go on strike. They haven't been on strike in public transport for eons, but nonetheless, it's irresponsible. So, what else are unions supposed to do when they get to this stage? But and let's hope it it does go on. But on the other hand. That crane disaster a couple of weeks ago, which had traffic held up all over Melbourne for um, for days, and apparently the the traffic jams were they, they are anyway right back to Point Cook etc. But they were even worse than normal. Um, no mention there about the employer causing a disaster, or in fact, in that case, it was sheer luck that workers weren't injured or killed. I mean, really mm. badly injured or killed. I think one worker was injured, uh, <clears throat> but badly injured or killed. Yet you don't, you know, because they couldn't attack the union over that one, they certainly didn't. They just talked in about the impact, but they no sort of headlines about how irresponsible the employer was to have this. And now that you know it's coming out, the way it was done seems to be been pretty ordinary uh, and that will come out I guess in later inquiries but again the the uh, if it had be if that had been done by unions it would have been all over the front page mm. and the photos of the cars back forever and the unions blame for causing this disaster uh, but but not when uh, not when an employer did it uh, Ronnie well it's always <laughs> in their interest um you know if it's if it's going to backfire on them, then there's someone that they have to blame for. That's right. <laughs> Maybe all people in the cars were to blame. They should use public transport. But then again, it's on strike thanks to the union. So that's a bloody problem. <laughs> uh, damn. Oh, I don't know. You can't win, can you? Um, there's another one. Timetable to, time to chaos. That's another headline of the Herald Sun I've just noted. Um, the uh, and, and there's also a, again um, there was a story and a, another there was another one around that but there's a story about a food van Jamie Oliver's mission to teach everyone how to cook has hit town with his mobile kitchen arriving in Melbourne for the first time and all these happy people mother and two kids in the kitchen learning how to cook in the van and it goes on it's well, class classes cost twenty etc um, now one assumes this is simply a, uh, a it, it might. This is simply a promotion for some sort of commercial do. Yeah, um, of course. Now, on this station, in the last couple of weeks, I've heard two interviews, and we replayed one of them on City Limits about a group having a van that's going all over Melbourne selling food at at very low cost to refugees, and uh, and it's been subsidised by people like us, hopefully paying full price for the food, not overpriced, but full price for the food, and that subsidises the 25% of the cost that the refugees pay, and this is for people, of course, on bridging visas who can't get any money, etc. So it's a great scheme, but that has not had one mention in the Herald Sun, but a commercial venture with a similar caravan but teaching people how to cook by a, a television um, cook-type person... Um, <clears throat> It gets a uh, big promotion in the Herald Sun. Isn't that interesting, uh, Ronnie? Very interesting, and we just know um, whose interest they're saving. And That's right. I'm just topping up my tea. You want to top up your tea? No, or? I'm all right. You're yeah. all right. Okay. Don't you like my tea, Ronnie? <laughs> no, um, I'm still going. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and just before we go to our first guest... Um, Another one I just wanted to mention in passing, because next week, it's the fourth Wednesday, and we're going to do a special, in fact, Corey's already pre-recorded an interview with Phil Griffiths, academic economist from Queensland, uh, and we're also hoping to get John Passant on the program, our irregular commentator, former Assistant Commissioner of Taxation, about um, 
about economic issues, and he talks a lot about tax, etc. Big story this week about Chevron, which, uh, well, it's Chevron, Exxon, and Shell, all those big companies. They wrote, they're developing the Gorgon which in environmental terms, another disaster off the West Australian coast, which has also been embroiled in industrial trouble, where you'll be pleased to hear all the fault lies with the union yet again, as the, if you read the papers. Um, but Chevron's got this wonderful deal. I, we'll talk about more next week, but it's a clever trick where they, the, a company that they own themselves in America loans money to the Australian company. In America, it gets the money at about... 0.1%, some incredibly low interest rate to loan over here, and it charges this lot a massive interest rate. All that goes back as profit to the same company in America, and it switches around. So the bit I like about this um, was for, for U.S. tax purposes, CFC was owned by Chevron Australia, so it was a foreign company that didn't pay U.S. tax, so they don't pay tax in the U.S. Chevron Australia paid the interest to CFC, this is their own company, which paid out the 1.2% due to the banks and the rest was profit. CFC shipped this profit straight back to Chevron Australia as dividends, which in Australia were U.S. earnings, so the profit was not taxable here either. So the money goes in both directions, but when it gets to U.S., it's Australian Australian-based, when it gets here it's US-based, and they pay tax to neither. Um, and um, they're being, but you know, it goes on and on, but we'll talk more of that next week, but I just thought it was worth raising as an interesting little item, really. Mm. Isn't that amazing? Oh, the other one, perhaps I'll just mention it, because um, Jeremy Stolger, the, the, um, the silk who's called, called uh, counsel assisting the Royal Commission, but he's really... Um, Crown Prosecutor, and he just makes all these outlandish statements about unions untested, and they get the headlines. And if they are tested and proven to be false, they don't get a headline at all. They don't get mentioned. Um, but um, Jeremy actually is in the same chambers in Sydney, a very conservative barrister's chambers, with Dyson Hayden. So they're chambermates, and he said uh, the ACTU was grandstanding by suggesting there was something biased about the old Hayden going off to the, uh, going off to the Liberal Party show. The ACTU has, has, has thought fit to write to the Prime Minister, no less, saying that the Royal Commission has no claim to independence, impartiality or to due process and must be terminated immediately. Commissioner, it smacks of grandstanding. He said that actually at the Commission the other day. Well, I think, uh, got it. I think it... Well, in, independence, impartiality, due process. Hey, I think they're all correct, don't you? Uh, Ronnie, but anyway, that's what he said. And um, the other one is, of course, he, he now admits, like last, they're saying he's a man of integrity. Last week when he got sprung and he stuttered out a few things, he liked Bronny. It only, he only owned up when he got sprung. Um, but having been sprung, he said, oh, no, I had no idea it was a Liberal Party bunk. Now it's these emails show that he knew way back then. Now, it shows that he seems incapable of being able to read an invitation that says all proceeds go to the Liberal Party and understand this just might have some connection to the Liberal Party. You know, he, he missed that point completely. And mm. it, therefore, you're left to wonder about all those judgments over the years of Dyson because uh, if a man can't understand a simple invitation that says the proceeds go to someone and he couldn't, couldn't put the connection together, how did he make all those judgments, for God's sake? And what are they worth? He was hoping that it's not gone out public, but 
At the end of the day, it's backfired. And backfired completely. We better go to our first guest. Um, I've, I've raped on far too long here, Ronnie. Let's go to our first guest. We'll take a break, come back, and we're going to go and talk about... Um, we're going to talk to a bloke called Bill Falkenham, actually, who um, is a member of the uh, Kingsville Golf Club. Kingswood? Kingswood? Kingswood or Kingswood? I can't read my own writing. I think it might be Kingswood anyway. It's out at, um, at Dingley, and we're going to have a yarn about it after this break. We're going to hear this track called... Big black train. <laughs> Righty, I'm not sure how close the peace train goes to Dingley, but uh, I suppose there's a connection there with the Ding Dong thing or something with trains. But anyway, Bill Falkinghouse out at Dingley. He's um, with the it's the Kingswood Golf Club, isn't it, Bill? That's correct. Yes. Yeah, I, I couldn't work out. I couldn't read my own writing. I thought it was it was either Ville or Wood, and I was pretty sure it was Kingswood. Um, Bill Falkenham's a member out there. There's been a, a dispute going on um, about the fact that the the club is going to amalgamate, or there's been a move to amalgamate with the Peninsula Club down at Frankston. A lot of the members are opposed to it. Uh, yours, but you've been to court twice, Bill, uh, challenging the decision that was made, the vote that was taken, and I think you're going to a higher court now. But uh, your grant, one of your grounds is you claim um, that the vote was that that the they changed the rules in order to get the the vote through. Can you just elaborate on that? Yeah, that's correct. Originally, this all started in nineteen uh, uh, two thousand and thirteen, uh, Kev. Uh, we had a process where the club thought they were in financial difficulties, as in that they were losing members. So they had three information nights, and um, basically the idea was that they were going to put up proposals to whether we stayed or go to a state at our site at, at uh, Dingley. And they basically went with this go proposal, which was the merger with um, Peninsula Golf Club. Now, we were under the understanding that it was always going to be a 75% vote to change our constitution to merge with uh, the Peninsula Golf Club. And then at the last um, hurdle, basically, before we went to the vote in uh, September 2013, they changed it to a 50% vote. And that changed the whole dynamics of the situation in that we never thought they would ever get 75%. And as it turned out, they never did get the 75%. Got 63%. And let's go back a bit. Now, you say the numbers dropped. I believe they dropped from about 1,200 to about 900. Is that the case? And that's about the correct number, Kevin. Yes, that's uh, about right. And, and um, you told me off air the other day that a lot of these private golf clubs are, in fact, in, in one. I think one imagines private golf clubs are, are you know, floating in money, but you tell me that most of them, in fact, have massive debts. How does that come about? Well, in our area, for argument's sake, there's probably three or four golf clubs within a probably five-kilometre radius of Kingswood Golf Club in Dingley. And of those clubs, we were the only club that wasn't in debt. The rest of them were in huge debts for basically building clubhouses. Uh, Woodlands, for example, which is in um, uh, basically in the suburb of Aspen... Sorry, in... um, What suburb are we in there? Uh, Probably Mentone, um, Parkdale. They've got... They build a clubhouse which they're in debt for about $10 million. Southern are in a situation, which is in Keysborough, basically, the similar situation. They've got debts of about $6 million from Clubhouse and South Spring Valley. They've got $10 million debt because of clubhouse, uh, new clubhouses. So, basically, we're the only club in the area that was debt-free at the time. Mm. Uh, and why did the committee or the people who pushed this and, and said we'll reduce the 75 to 50, what was their motivation for amalgamation? 
Well, basically, from what we've gleaned over the period that we're looking at, uh, Peninsula were the club that were in trouble. Reportedly, we have no actual figures, but they're in debt to the tune of 5 to 20 million. No one will come out and give us the actual figure. So Peninsula were the ones that were really pushing the merger, and uh, our directors were on board with the uh, Peninsula board, and they had already signed a heads-up agreement in the March or April of uh, 2013 before we even had had the vote. So they were pretty keen for us to merge with Peninsula for reasons that uh, were scant in the best, in the best interests of Peninsula. Peninsula was the club that were in trouble. Kingswood wasn't in the trouble. In trouble. Most courses have go through periods of decline and fall of memberships, and you know at the moment it was a, a fall, but it's never been. You know, in my forty, nearly forty years at member at Kingswood, we've always had enough members to uh, be financially viable. Mm. And um, and just just background again, backgrounding a fraction. I mean, apart from you being on, on the bay for forty years, you have a sentimental attachment because you said your father actually died on the on the course out there. That's correct. He, he died on the. It's now now our um, our, um, our third hole. It used to be our eighth hole. We changed the course around, and uh, yeah, he died there uh, some in nineteen eighty five, and. Yeah, apart from the emotional thing of him dying there, I mean, people have built this club from nothing. People that fought in both world wars, um, blokes that went to Changi, uh, and this has just, in my opinion, just been thrown overboard mm. for, 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 for financial gain. And you've taken this to court. Uh, you know, we went to the Supreme Court and then on appeal, did you not? Is that the case? Yeah, we, we went to the Supreme Court with some unusual judgment in that we basically won the case but lost the war. Um, we won basically every point we brought up in, in, in the case, but uh, because the Justice Robeson decided we took too long to get to court, he ruled in favour of uh, Peninsula Kingswood. And um, it was an unbelievable um, result in that if you ever read, get a chance to get a read the uh, judgment, it just goes point after point after point that we won. Uh, there's 12 point, 11 points in total, basically, and we won 11, 10 of them. And in the end, the judge, Justice Robeson, said that because we took too long to get to court, um, he could only find, he couldn't see how the merger would be unwound, so he found for uh, defendants. Mm. Uh, and it was just a shattering experience, and when we decided to go to the appeal court, we basically got the same result. I don't think they could find it, uh, yeah, the legal system, to go against the judgment of Judge uh, Justice Robeson. Mm. And, and are, you, are you now going to the High Court? Yeah, we've got a submission in the High Court at the moment. Um, it'll be heard. So that's that's an application to be heard, essentially? Yes, basically, yeah. I yeah. mean, what happens in the High Court, they just don't hear every case. So they no. go, through, no. go through the cases, yeah. as you probably realise, sorry. Uh, they go through the cases and decide which ones they'll hear and which ones they won't. Um, basically, hopefully, that will be uh, mid-September. We'll get the result from that. And um, my legal advisers advise us that if we do go to court, if we do get to go to Canberra, it probably won't be for another 12 months. So it's a, mm. it's a long process. And that means the, the other the, the reason they gave in the earlier courts will be a further year down the track. Yeah, basically. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, that's correct. Yeah, and this also must be incredibly costly, I would imagine. I mean, uh, 
And you're correct. That is that has been the the bone of contention from from us from day one. We had to raise X amount of dollars, and that's one of the reasons why it took us a fairly took us about six months to get to court because of the finding the money to uh, engage our legal team. And you've got uh, some pro bono help, haven't you? Yes, Mr. Uh, Pranesh Lyle, our uh, current our local solicitor in Dingley, who, who owns uh, Middleton's. He's worked pro bono for the whole case. He hasn't got a zack out of this, uh, in mm. this case. So it's and the it's the silks and the barristers who are causing yeah, the cost of money. And, and to give them their due, they've capped their costs and they've been fairly reasonable. But now look, up to date, we've spent probably 140000 which is peanuts compared to what Peninsula Kings would have spent. And we still owe probably fifty grand going mm. into the high court action. Is there a danger of being hit with their costs in the end of all this? Uh, the beauty of the situation so far is that um, we, we, in both court cases, we didn't have any costs at all. Both costs were shared by the, the, the relative parties. They had to pay their own costs, which is an exceptional situation mm. when you consider we lost both cases and we didn't have to pay any costs. Uh, one of the reasons that um, I'm heading this is that um, um, I've got nothing to lose. Right. Um, having said that, I've got a lot to lose in other ways. But. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, you're, but you're, well, clearly you, you feel very strongly about it. Now, the, the, what happens to the land? Is the land going to be sold off, presumably? Well, the land actually is, is under sale at the moment. There's been a deposit um, given, um, and um, the final settlement, to my knowledge, is the 17th of September 2017. Um, they've, they've put that, to our knowledge, they've put that, the $20 million in trust because of the legal action going on at the moment. And we've had people um, from a um, development company who have been surveying Dingley, surveying the golf course, um, making um, approaches to local organisations to see what they can do to um, expedite the uh, development of the land. Um, But they haven't done anything concrete. They're just in the process of... um, uh, feeling the community out as far as what the development mm. is going to be. So there, and there's a Save Digley group, I believe, forming, which um, which will keep an eye on what the developers... But one can imagine if the developers are paying big money for what would be prime real estate, I'd imagine, um, they're going to want to get as much out of it as possible at the end of it all. Exactly. I mean, the, the reported figure is $125 million for the land. And um, basically, Kingswood is in the epicentre of uh, Dingley. I mean, it's it's prime real estate. I mean, they're talking about putting anything between 500 and 1,000 houses on this estate. Mm. Um, it's a massive um, project. And if you know anything about Dingley, it's a very land... It's a locked uh, suburb, basically. Yeah, you've got one... Mm. It's one known area. as Dingley Village, isn't it? So there's sort of that village thing about it. Yeah. I mean, it was a Dingley Village when I first came to live in Dingley, but it's probably being swallowed up by... Um, uh, you know, like the surrounding suburbs. But when I first came here, it was like a little village. I've been here for on and off for about 35, 35 years. And um, obviously the context of everything changes over that time. I mean, you take Berwick at the moment. That's that's considered a village, and that's in a similar situation. It's been swallowed up by surrounding suburbs. Yes, yes. So, so, so at the moment you're in this limbo situation where you're just waiting to go to the High Court, are you? Yeah, correct, Kevin. I mean, it's basically, um, it's been a long, hard process. I mean, my supporters have been fantastic. I mean, they've been really um, 
thin, thin for the fight. I mean, unfortunately, there's not a lot of us, and that's probably one of the been one of the hardships of the whole situation trying to raise this money in a small group. We're, we've done everything we can in Dingley as far as letter dropping and uh, articles in the local paper, etc., etc. Public meetings. We've got a public meeting tonight, actually, which is not ours, but it's by the community centre. Do a consultation meeting tonight at uh, Dingley, um, hoping that all these people will come together and state their uh, intentions. Mm. And just to finish up, um, do you still play golf there, or how do, how do the members who support this treat you down there at the moment? That's an interesting question, Kev. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, I'm shunned by many. Um, the people obviously want to go. Un- I wouldn't say it's unfriendly in that respect. I mean, I've, I've obviously I know a lot of people at the golf club have been there for mm-hmm. such a long time, and um, I just I just think. We, we find it very difficult because the club is split in two. It's not really the club it was. And those things come into four play. It's just, you know, as you can imagine, in any situation where the so-called merger is about, you know, one party's going to suffer more than the other. And we're going to suffer more because we're going to lose our course and our identity, basically. Yeah. All right, it's ongoing. And I guess if, if it does go ahead, well, there will be all sorts of planning issues taking place down there as well. For sure. I mean, we've got another group here that uh, the Say of Kingswood uh, Golf Club group who are basically onto the uh, planning uh, side of it once, once they put their applications in to rezone, et cetera, et cetera. But in, in far as I can see, they, will, they might be able to change small things, but I can't see, as you suggested before, Kevin, how are they going to stop a development with so much mm-hmm. money involved? Yeah, OK. Look, Bill, thanks for your time this morning and good luck with it all. I really appreciate <laughs> being, being on you with it this morning, Kevin. I appreciate the time. Thank you. OK, right, yeah. Thanks a lot. Bill Falkingham there, who's with the... Is he still with them? Yes, I think he is, the Kingswood Golf Club. And uh, that's, I think we can see a future planning problem down there as well, if, unless they can win their high court case. April Braggs walked into the studio. And um, just before we take a very quick break and then go to April with a glass of water there she's got to Today. She, she <laughs> continues to reject our, our tea here. Um, a couple of items um, were handed to us. Um, at 2 o'clock today at the State Library, today, 19th August, yes it is, um, Student Student National Day of Action, and it's about no funding cuts, no fee deregulation, no wait on new start. I'm reading the thing here. And um, it's demand a better future, etc. Um, but it's State Library today, Student National Day of Action, so I'm sure students know about it anyway, but anyone who wants to support them, wander down and support them. And the rally, the Metro and Yarra trams, we mentioned earlier, of course, the trains aren't going on strike anymore, but the union has got a, a rally this Friday, um, August 21, that's this Friday, because today's the 19th, and I can add two to that. Um, and it's 1.30 start, members meeting sharp at Melbourne at the Trades Hall, and then the Corner Victoria and Ligon at um, at 12 o'clock. That's 11.30, yeah, it's a bit strange, it's 11.30 start, that one. 12 o'clock, march to the FSS, what's the FSSS? Federation yeah. Square, maybe? Flinders Street Station it would be, wouldn't it? Oh, being yeah, public yeah. transport. Yes, okay, Flinders Street Station. Okay, gee, we're smart. It's early in the morning. <laughs> it's, so at public demonstration, 12.15, Flinders Street, says it under it, Flinders Street Station steps, you idiot. Kevin, read on. United we stand, it says. So that's a community demo in, in lo- in, instead of the um, strike, is that right? Um, yes, although the trams are going on strike, aren't they? Oh, but, okay. it, but anyway, this is the community rally, yeah. Meet there, and 
it says uh, members not protected by the industrial action who are not rostered for duty or on approved leave across our industry are also encouraged to attend. But it's actually 12.15 at Flinders Street stations where we come into it, folks, So and support the public transport workers. There you are, April. Uh, look, we'll take a very quick break, come back and talk housing. Beautiful. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Both said it was irresponsible. Okay, April Bragg's in the studio, and we're going to talk housing issues, April, housing issues again. <laughs> uh, look, I mentioned earlier, there is one I'd like to raise, the um, the houses along the east-west link um, there where yeah. they bought lots of them, um, and the government said at the start that, um, well, they're offering them back to people, but apparently very few are taking mm. up the offer. And they said there'd be social, uh, public housing was the word they used originally. Now it's suggested there's one one house might be social housing. Um, it's not no longer even public, but social. Um, it's the old story, isn't it? Here yeah. we have a government that has incredible amount of property. The money's been spent. You've already done it. Yes. You've got a chance to have a massive a collection Injection. of public housing yeah. in the area and, and, and an area that's close to the city, close to public transport. Yeah. And we never get that that opportunity. And um, most people who we would think, um, no matter how you do it, whether you do it as um, emergency housing or public housing, course of preference being long-term housing, um, that it's well located and um, basically people eligible for housing stock these days actually need housing that's well located, particularly to medical services. A lot of the stock, I understand, is two and three bedrooms. So we'd be looking at families. That's the, the... the stock in the state that's um, most scarce. Um, families barely get housed in public housing now because we spent, you know, two to three decades knocking down um, particularly three-bedroom um, housing on broadacre estates and selling that land off. So we have very little um, housing for families. And, of course, with families as well, um, once you, you have housing, you, your lives become very stable and so there's very little turnover. So this is a great opportunity um, because I understand it's... Um, uh, the, the apartment block is mainly two and three bedrooms and then I would imagine those other houses that were along the track um, were family homes so we'd be looking at three bedroom houses so yeah it's a great opportunity and it, it's very disappointing because the Premier did say that in December, um, December at Christmas um, once they worked through people that didn't want to um, return to their, their homes um, and who can blame them after going through such um, a, a, a dreadful upheaval and still uncertain into the future, I guess, as well, people would be thinking. Um, but we've got properties laying vacant. Um, that apartment building, that the Nap Farm... to raise that, 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 yeah. yes, that one as well. I mean, they actually bought that. And mm. I think there's, there was 173 units in that complex and they purchased 99. And they've been, we would think, vacant ever since then. Um, so that was pre-election. Um, which is just really disgraceful. Um, the local community housing organisation, Yarra Housing, um, that covers um, that has that coverage ge- geographically, they've come out and said that they've got over a thousand people on their prioritised prioritisation list, which means they're the people that are, um, you know, our rough sleepers and and families that that are at risk. Um, so 
and that that's increased by um, something like 27 percent. I think Rob Leslie had said, who's the CEO. So right right in that area, they, they're good to go with mm. with people now. Um, A massive need. Um, what well, given that uh, the government says it's concerned about affordable housing and people who can't get into housing, it has this opportunity as doing nothing about it. What what is the government doing apart from saying it's concerned? Well, one of our well, I mean, one of our big concerns. I, I mean, also in the in state budget, and of course, this is also a federal government responsibility. So, governments at, at both levels not putting money into capital works, but. Um, you know, in the, in the last state budget, that they only announced that there would be 63 pop properties built for the whole year. Um, we've got over 35,000 public housing applicants, um, and that's just applications. <coughs> that 35,000 isn't people, so um, that's just the number of applications that are lodged that are waiting for public housing, and many of those people on the highest priority um, level as well. So we really need to to be starting to look at how to how to address this problem and, and it's, I mean with the, with this um, so there must be just I think close Kevin I think close to three hundred properties that the government actually owns just um, with that opportunity that's there now and that should be that should be seized. Mm-hmm. There was a story in the Age a couple of weeks ago it might have been last week about the homeless and the best solution to homelessness is to give people a roof over their head. Mm. Um, now, was, there were a number of number of charitable groups, etc., um, NGOs mentioned in the story all saying this is a wonderful thing, but nowhere did it say how did you afford to get that rig or how do you, how do you get the housing. Um, it said it's a wonderful solution, but it, it didn't say where the money comes from or how you afford to, to put roofs over all the, all the homeless's head. Um, any any solution? I mean, it sounds like a great solution. Of course, if you give yeah. someone a, a roof over their head, it's a great yeah. solution if you're homeless. That, yeah. that seems pretty logical. It's, it's never... Um, yeah. but, um, but it just didn't it's give you any idea of the economics of it. Yeah, and, and certainly we've... Um, the way that it's actually being done now, and, and you know the um, government... Um, uh, abrogating its responsibility to, to housing people and passing it over to the not-for-profit sector. And that's been trying to grow itself for, for 10 years. And, I mean, while, you know, it's, a, I suppose, a substantial player, um, it's never going to be able to house house the nation or house our, our, meet our housing needs, particularly for low- to middle-income um, wage earners or um, people on benefits. Um, so one of the things that, and again, that we've talked to for, about it for a really long time, is let's look at a long-term um, housing strategy that includes a long-term building plan. And that, and going along with that, that plan is also how you stimulate the building sector and particularly um, avoid the boom-bust cycle that um, the se- that sector always talks about. Mm. So not just the building industry itself, but the allied industry as well. So it's actually an economic stimulus as, as well. But it basically needs the, co- the commitment to the political will to, to do that and to put the money up front and prepare to invest at least for the first 10, 10 years of any such program. But it's only going to get worse because we, I mean, every day you open the paper and they now talk about million-dollar properties being the norm. Mm. I mean, it's not... Mm. It's it's not it's not extraordinary anymore. Well, it's it's becoming it's becoming the average in Sydney yeah, apparently, yeah. Um, and Melbourne therefore won't be that yeah. far behind. Well, I, I think that we're we're already there. I mean, every week 
weekend. Um, you know, they're, they're mm. even televising on Saturday nights now um, what the auction results were that afternoon. And oh, I've missed that. Yeah, I must, I mean, I must be watching footy or something. Well, it's <laughs> actually a segment now. It's like, oh, and now to the today's auctions, and everyone gets really excited. Can but, I just jump yeah, in? Sure. Um, just on the note. Hang that on, hang on. We've got to answer that question. Can oh. he jump in or not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, just on the note, um, in terms of um, you know the companies like building companies yeah. uh, uh, you know looking at the commitment that they have but if we look at the housing is the prob- is big problem public housing and homelessness is also yeah. big issue is there a, a strategy in terms of engaging people who are homeless and people who are in desperate for public housing to go through a training or um, yeah capacity building yeah. training yeah. where they are the ones who have to go through that process of yeah. the training and engage in building a home that they feel that it's their effort, like the commitment that they have to put so that they can live in that public housing, which it is a satisfaction but empowerment yeah. at the same time, where it gives a job for them to be able to build a home for themselves, yeah. which is a public housing for them. And in a long term, it it will make them feel that I've put my energy mm. into this, not mm. a contracted building companies out there building it yeah. for these people, which, yeah. you know, in a way, like, you know, it's their strategy. Yeah, to or even, have that no, impulse. there isn't. No, that is a simple mm. answer to that. And indeed, following up on that, we've mentioned a few times that when there was the Housing Commission many years ago in the 50s, 60s and 70s in this city, they actually had their own construction authority. Yes, that's right. And, bu- and built their own homes and they employed apprentices in the industry and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And there have been programs in, in the good old days, and I'm talking about 20, 30 years ago, that were not um, that those type of schemes where people, um, I suppose it was called sweat equity, um, mm-hmm. but it was the shared home ownership scheme when the um, government actually um, uh, looked at providing. Um, well, no interest finance, basically, mm-hmm. um, to people who wanted to build their, their own homes or wanted to, to own, but it was geared to very low-income workers. But the, Sorry, it was called the Self-Help Build Scheme, which was, you know, mm. and, and it's just another part that can be complementary to a, just a different model of housing yeah. for those people that, that are able and wanting to do that. And many people did. Yeah. Um, and there's been a report in the past couple of weeks, um, Andrea Sharam, who used to co-present on this mm. program, um, is now researching at Swinburne. She's co-authored a report where she's, they say people can save money by being the developers themselves and getting developers out of the equation, although the, mm. I'm not sure how you do yeah, that, yeah. and it's, it doesn't solve the problem. That's why people can still afford it. It's still going to yeah. be fairly expensive, I yeah. would think. It lowers the cost, but it doesn't answer the solution, answer the question of how do you house people who simply can't afford yeah. um, to own their own in the first yeah. place. And, it, and it's chronic across Australia. Um, so we, we have to um, – and sorry, what I was going to say before is um, we're, we're just not talking about where it's where we're stuck at the moment. <coughs> it is going to get worse, particularly for our young people, because with the prices of land um, and and particularly workers losing um, – you know, losing um, entitlements and casualisation of the workforce, and particularly for our young people, and wages certainly not keeping up to cost of living, let alone the cost of housing. Um, so we we could expect it to to only get worse. And we we're also talking about um, not this generation, but generations to to come that um, are going to be um, stuck in the private rental market. That's if that you know, which is a really um, poor. <laughs> 
um, provider. It's mm. um, you know we talked about this over and over again. Poor provider, but very expensive way well, of doing it. Yeah, but also mm. people don't have any rights basically within the mm. within that system. Yeah. So um, it's a really poor alternative. But um, and again, but that's about supply, and you know you, you're propping up um, investors as well. So you, so it really is about the political will to to break the cycle. I've got a quote here that's going to reduce you to tears, I think, um, <laughs> April. So as Shakespeare wrote, if you have tears, prepare to shed them now. Um, Ken Morrison from the Property Council of Australia has Lord. responded to the, to the report, even by David Murray, um, the financial system inquiry, that maybe they should have another look at um, negative gearing, etc. And David's response is um, that, that certainly they should not. Um, but he says, and this is the bit that I think will upset you enormously, if you stop people using negative gearing to improve housing affordability, which is a given, isn't it, that improves housing affordability, uh, it could be at the expense of the business viability of landlords who rent out properties. Imagine the effect on the wider economy if landlords felt they had to dump their underperforming properties at fire sale prices. Bring it on. That's pretty excellent. I mean, really. What happened to the tears I was expecting? Yeah, well, I mean, what can you say, say about. I mean, it's just, it's never going it's, it's it's to be a winner, is it? Investment in shelter. And mm. people need. We all mm. need shelter, and to be able to use that as a as a commodity. Well, it's back. I don't agree with them totally, but the Henry George League <laughs> argument that land should be. Private, yeah. you know, public property, essentially social yeah, property, yeah. and and the fact that there's all that land, all that property, all that money going into it, yeah. and there's thousands and thousands of people yeah. who can't afford a roof over their head, and or, let alone the or ra- are living in poverty because they yeah. to have a roof over their yeah. head, and let alone the the amount of rent assistance. I can't remember the amount of rent assistance is actually um, paid to to landlords as well through the um, social mm. security system. Ruth so. of South Melbourne's. So if you up- gathered up all that money. <laughs> It's, well, it's, Put it into right. a building program. And, uh, and they keep telling us that it's the small investors who are getting this negative gearing, so we're hurting the small oh, investors. Isn't that terrible? Yeah. Um, Kevin and April from Ruth of South Melbourne, housing Melbourne won award of world's best, world's most livable city, homeless sleeping rough waiting list. Do they take magic mushrooms, the ones who make the award? Can you answer that, anyone? Yeah. <laughs> I was actually, um, I, heard, I heard that we won that award. That um, prize when I was driving in, and I, I was actually thinking it's very. Um, as everyone um, knows, we're based in Flinders Lane, and um, certainly um, rough sleepers uh, are, are more visible um, over this winter, um, in, in particularly like around Flinders, just in Flinders Lane, where people weren't necessarily before. But um, you know, we've got quite a few people that are in doorways, mm. and um, and everyone knows it's just been a, a shocking winter. So it's um. Yeah, I don't think that those no. <laughs> those things are taken into account. So they're about putting a roof over their head solution. It's hasn't not about worked livability. No. Yeah. And you mentioned to me yesterday that you've seen people out coming in and in the open, sleeping in the open in various parts. Yeah, I, um, just around the west, um, but just, um, particularly um, just coming down um, in, in, towards the Maidstone area. But um, I noticed that some people have um, set up a set up camp uh, basically just under the the footbridge that's on Ballarat Road. So there's actually no cover there. People um, are on the nature strip. And it looks to be about four to five um, people, people maybe. But that, but that's a, a, a major road. I mean, mm. people are actually on the nature strip of a major road, which is just um, a, a, appalling. Well, a community of homeless had formed, I think I've mentioned before, in the, on the, under the, the road, the old railway line that goes under Royal Parade, 
um, yeah. um, in Brunswick, how it goes up to Princes Park, which I use to come here on my bike. Um, it um, <coughs> That group they just disappeared, they, and I believe the council moved them on. I don't know where they've gone, but they've just gone out there. They're somewhere out there and still homeless, mm. one assumes, but mm. not down. It was a very cold spot, but nonetheless, mm. they, they had a community there. And that's why, you know, we do need that the, the response of um, – I, I mean, when we were actually part of that, um, part the East West Link as well, I think there's some commercial properties in there. So it, so it is – and I'm in no way saying that this is the housing solution for people – but to get people off the streets and off a main road, I, I mean, I can't imagine what's happened to those people that they've actually thought that they've, they must have come for somewhere that they thought was relatively secluded and safe to be in the middle of a main road. Mm. It's um, just outrageous. So we need to use our vacant buildings to be able to get people out of the cold and be able to shower and, you know, and, and council and, and the state government should be doing something about that. Um, you know, even if it's sort of that drop-in type, type facility along with looking at... at Temporary housing, emergency housing that people need, and of course long-term housing. Mm. Um, so there's um, lots of work to do. But yeah, I think that the visibility of people on the streets this winter has been really. Lou, is there anything you wanted to raise? By the way, specifically this morning, we haven't we haven't <laughs> asked you that yet. Well, I've, I've raised we've raised issues. But um, you... Oh, again, just um, I, I suppose through our, through our own service. Um, uh, over the last month, since the last time we, we were on, we've um, certainly seen an increase in numbers and, and again, in that category of people that um, have lost their housing but um, now in really um, poor circumstances staying with family or, or friends and that where that's broken down, that's probably now about 70% of the people that we see each mm. month. And just the health impacts that that's having on people. People are, are, are really distressed. I'm talking about people late 60s, 70s, um, one woman that was in her 80s. Um, and to, to really be, to, to being, to, sorry, experiencing that kind of distress and that kind of uncertainty at, at that age um, is, is re- really leading to some quite severe mental health problems, I, I think. And people mm-hmm. do talk to us about they don't want to live like this any anymore. They can't see any light at the end of the tunnel and, um, yeah, talking about... Yeah, yeah. On that, I, I, edited, I edited a report um, by a placement student looking at the, uh, the, the question of... Um, Homeless youth in Melton area, that Melton oh, yeah. region, yeah. Um, quite a. We, we should get a copy and bring it in yeah. and talk about it because you know all sorts of problems, including the inability to get. Most of the services are in Footscray or somewhere yeah. in the western suburbs. So, the question of no public transport yeah. available to get them there on time when they're supposed to be there at given times, etc. But just that whole question of homelessness in an area that is so devoid and of the services, po- poverty, yeah, is, um, um, which is really quite distressing real to me because. Um, I'd say the second worst job I ever had, no, <laughs> the worst job I ever had really, was um, I, I was a financial counsellor for a while, but it was in the Melton area, and um, the and this is about twenty years ago, but um, it's to, to think that things haven't improved and people are still saying the same mm. thing about um, the distance and travel and um, just the. Yeah, the lack of opportunity and housing, yeah. <coughs> rental houses are, are really high there, and a lot of people actually 
bought out in that area but have, have since lost their homes as well because their employment was lost because they were working mm. in industries in the western yes. suburbs as well. And in those sort of areas, studies have shown it can be more costly because of your mobility yep. problems, that having to have a car, having to do yep. all those things you've got to do, it, it can be cheaper to live in a more expensive place closer yes. to the city. Yeah than living out there. Um, And particularly because it's a family-orientated area as well. And just even things that, um, you know, like because people are paying for kids' schooling and kindergartens Mm. and, like, there's fees attached with all of that now. None of it it is for free. Mm. Um, You know, kindergarten fees um, for your kids are, you know, like 300 bucks a term. Um, So that pressure that it's actually putting on on families just to... Yes, the the whole um, and also the the you know the fact that all these years later, as you just said, there's still bugger all public yeah, transport out yeah. there. I mean that's that's outrageous yeah. when you consider that it's a you know massively growing area. Yeah, and the missed opportunity with the regional rail link through mm. um, for for really yeah. there there as well. So oh, well, we cheat people up. Again. Yeah, <laughs> we've, <laughs> we've done, done well. A, done a great job. <laughs> Look, thank Ronnie. And tell um, people. Sorry, just going about this. Yeah. Westling um, VCOS has um, come out certainly in support and been supporting it for the last twelve months. I know that um, the Melbourne Greens MP Alan um, Sandal is. Um, is now publicly looking at doing something. So I think there's a bit of a campaign oh, going, well, so watch out for Positive that. note to end Yeah, on. but Damn ring it. the minister. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so next week, tell, look, thank Ronnie. Tell people next Thanks, week we're Ronnie. going to talk economics with people about oh, well. tax and things. Oh, well, tax. <laughs> Thanks, Ronnie. Excited See everyone message. next week. Thank you, April. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.